Let's pray together. Father, would you now cause your word to be alive for us? Would you cause us to hear these statements that the Apostle Paul wrote through that amanuensis so many years ago? And Lord, would you cause them to pierce our hearts? Would you cause these statements to change us, to give us a security that cannot be shaken, a boldness that is courage in the face of every fear. Lord, would you cause us to feel the wonder of being forgiven, completely, fully forgiven and cleansed. And Lord, would you make your word the rock on which we build our lives? Would you make the truth that Christ is raised from the dead what makes it so that we can have a hope and a joy and an optimism that praises you through everything that we will suffer? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Almost 2,000 years ago this summer, in the summer of 2000, Jill and I got to go to the city of Jerusalem. It was, a, it was actually a tour of Israel, and it was, it was extremely well-planned. We, we flew into Tel Aviv, and then we went south. We went all the way to the Red Sea, and then we went north. We went all the way up into Galilee, and then finally, after almost the, at the, almost at the end of the two weeks, we circled down into the city of Jerusalem. And uh, on, on one of these days in Jerusalem, which was, it was just remarkable, phenomenal to be there, uh, we, we got to go under the Wailing Wall near the site of uh, Herod's temple and Solomon's temple. And underneath there, under the Wailing Wall, there is this massive stone that, that was placed there probably by Herod, but it may go back earlier than that. This stone, it's, it's, the, it's one of the largest things ever moved by human beings without any kind of motorized technology. This thing weighs 570 tons. That's 1,140,000 pounds. It's 45 feet long. 45 feet is the maximum length of a yellow school bus in this country. So this, this stone is as long as a yellow school bus. It's 10 feet tall, and it's 10 feet wide. Um, to, to put in perspective how much this thing weighs, uh, the tour guides, they say that it's the equivalent, 1,140,000 pounds, it's the equivalent of two 747s with the people and their luggage after they've shopped in Jerusalem. So, I mean, this thing is massive. In AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the city and they tore down the temple, they tried to tear down this stone. And you can see how they've, they've cut gouges into the rock as they tried to break it. And the tour guides, they love to say, the Romans tried to break the rock and the rock broke them. And my prayer this morning is that the truths of Romans 8 would be for us. 
like that massive foundation stone on the Temple Mount. I would invite you to open this morning to Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking at, looking at Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, the end of the chapter. And my hope and prayer is that as we are, the indwell, as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit makes us the new temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's Spirit dwells in you. So we, we got two points in this passage, verses 31 through 34, we're justified. Verses 35 through 39, we're beloved. And my hope and prayer is that these realities, that we're justified and loved by God, would be like this massive foundation stone on which we build our lives. So that when Satan and the world and sin come at us and try to tear down the temple of the Holy Spirit and damn us to hell, when they attempt that, they won't break the truth that we are justified, we are justified and beloved, but rather... The fact that we are justified and beloved will break them. So we want this to become a reality as we overcome, which is what Paul is talking about in this passage. The, the idea in this passage, in Romans 8, 31 through 39, is that no one can overcome God so as to unjustify, condemn, or separate us from the love of God in Christ. No one can overcome God so as to unjustify, condemn, or separate us from the love of God in Christ. What Paul says here speaks to our fear, our insecurity, our guilt, and our suffering. So let's look together at Romans 8. And in verses 31 through 34, as Paul deals with the fact that we are justified... He's, he's really summarizing and bringing together the truths and implications of everything that he said to this point in the book of Romans. So in many ways, Paul is going to, to be concluding a big section of his argument in the book of Romans here in Romans 8, verses 31 through 34. And what he does here is he asks five questions. What he wants us to do is think. So he asks these, asks these questions to prompt us to explore the depths of these realities. The first question, I think, is the, the con controlling idea. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? And, and the things that he has in view are the immediately preceding things, statements that he's made, where he says, for instance, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I'm just reading Romans 8, 29 here. Uh, in order that the Son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then verse 30, that, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And, and you notice how there's nobody dropping out of that chain. Everybody on whom the Lord sets his love gets justified. So if you are someone who has experienced the love of God, your justification is secure. Your glorification is secure. And Paul asked the question, what then shall we say to these things? And in the questions that follow, really, he's, he's offering up different things that could be said in response to these things. 
Let's look at that next question there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul here is speaking to the things that we might fear. And, and what, he's, what he's saying is, what is it that you fear? Is your fear in response to an almighty adversary? No human adversary that we face, nothing that we face except God is almighty. Is your fear in response to an all-knowing adversary? Is your fear in response to an adversary who is all-present? Do you have an adversary that you cannot escape, that you cannot outwit, and that you cannot overcome? Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, i got bad news for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the answer to those questions is yes, you do have an opponent who cannot be escaped, cannot be outwitted, and cannot be overcome because you have set yourself against the living God. If you're here and you are not a believer in Jesus, or if in any way you are opposing the people of Jesus, you are setting yourself against an almighty adversary. But if you're here and you're a believer and you're trusting God and you're looking to him for your justification, who can be against you? No one can overcome you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is speaking to our fear, and then he goes on to this next question here in verse 32, and he asks this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, this, this question, when he says, he who did not spare his own son, um, Paul is pointing to the fact that nothing cost God more than our redemption. There is, there is nothing more valuable to God that he could have given because no one is or could be more dear to God than his own son, the Lord Jesus. He's also pointing out when he says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he's also pointing out that there is no standard that could be more exacting than God's own holiness. And in the attempt to meet that standard, to secure our justification, the Father did not spare the Son. And this tells us that no justice has been more fully executed and no penalty more thoroughly paid than the Father not sparing His own Son, but giving Him up for us all. And if He's done this, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? As I've been thinking in these last few weeks about these statements, if God is for us, who can be against us? And He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I, I couldn't help but think of this this man that I've been reading about, Robert Moses. 
Uh, this guy was a, a political appointee in the state of New York, and he accumulated to himself power. And his power was such that none dared oppose him. Governors who tried to break Moses, Robert Moses actually found themselves broken against Robert Moses' power. Robert Moses was an enormously powerful man, but he was also very, very much corrupted by the power that he accumulated to himself. And, and this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? I couldn't help but think about those poor politicians in the state of New York who tried to oppose Robert Moses and eventually came around to the fact that they had to get on board with him because if Robert Moses was with them, who could be against them? Well, this guy was devious, he was wicked, he was heartless. He devised ways to just take people's land. If he wanted to build a highway on their land or if he wanted a park where their, their farm was, there's this awful story about this family that they had all worked together in the 1920s in the state of New York on Long Island to clear the land. The five-year-old son was on the, on the team of horses pulling the plow while the parents pushed and shoved and pulled on the roots to clear the, the tree stumps out of this property. And they finally got it all cleared and Robert Moses decided that that's where he wanted his highway. And so he just came in and unjustly, uh, above the law, no one could stop him, seized this poor family's land just as they had got it, gotten it cleared. You, you don't want an enemy like that. But God is not like that. The God of the Bible is a just God who is, he shows no partiality and he upholds the rights of the oppressed and he forgives those who turn to him and repent of their sins. Another thing that, that Robert Moses would do is he would, he would deceive the politicians on how much these parkways and these parks that he wanted to build, he would deceive them as to how much these things would cost. And then he would get the measures approved and, and the initial stages of the projects would, would be this enormous expense that basically exhausted his budget. But at that point, he had them. He had them because they couldn't, they couldn't start the project and not finish it. And then they couldn't go back and say, well, he spent all the money too early. He told us it wasn't going to cost this much because that would just make them look bad, these poor politicians. And so it's kind of like if, he, if they've given us the money to start the project, how will they not also give us the money to finish the project? That was Robert Moses' way of thinking. And what I'm doing here is I'm trying to illustrate that this is a negative example of the positive things that Paul is talking about. If God has put Jesus forward to secure our salvation, how will he not finish the project? And what's the project? The project is our glorification. Verse, verse 30 those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if he's given Jesus to save us, will he not give us what we need to be conformed to the image of Jesus? That's what he's after. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God gave Jesus to bear the curse. Will he not lavish all the promised blessings of the renewal of all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. I, I heard uh, a pastor use an illustration. He said, imagine a man giving his wife a, a $50,000 necklace. Is he not going to pay for the gift wrapping as well if the necklace costs that much money? If God has given us Jesus, will he not give us everything that we need to be conformed to the image of Christ? That, that's what the all things there refers to. In addition, I think, to the, the, the new creation that's been referred to earlier in the passage when he had talked about creation groaning until the redemption of our bodies and the creation being set free to the, to the glory of the children of God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes this. One day, we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, that could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced our happiness has been left with us. So Paul here, I think, is really expositing what he had said back up in Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And the good is defined as being conformed to the image of Christ, being justified and being brought through so that we can enjoy the new heavens and new earth and God's renewal of all things. And the question for us is, can we trust him? Can we trust him that nothing that would increase our happiness in the resurrection is being denied to us and that nothing that would reduce our happiness in the resurrection is being left with us. That's what Paul is asking us to believe. When he says here in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? John Newton wrote, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. He has his purposes, he has his designs, he has his projects, and he is going to accomplish them. The question for us is, can we trust him? Can we respond in a way that pleases him? So Paul, I think, is speaking to our fear, and he's speaking to our insecurity. Our insecurity, because we... we we're inclined to question these things. We're inclined not to believe that God is going to meet all of our needs. But in many ways, it's, it's like, we, we could almost say it's like the Israelites being brought out of Egypt and being brought through the land of promise. If he brought them out of Egypt, will he not bring them through the wilderness to the land of promise? If he has sent Christ to the cross, will he not give us everything that we need to get to the river that we might cross it into the new Jerusalem. So no one is going to overcome God. No one is going to overcome God, and no one is going to be able to unjustify God's people. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The elect here are those whom he foreknew up in verse 29. And, and you know, sometimes people are inclined to, to ask the question, how do I know if I'm elect? Here's an answer I'm going to propose to you. If you're prepared 
to recognize that what God says is wrong is wrong and that you want to turn away from those things. And if you're prepared to recognize that God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice of propitiation and he died on the cross and then God raised him from the dead and you're prepared to, to risk everything on him and put all your hope and trust in Jesus, you're elect. You're elect. If you're ready to turn away from your sin and trust wholly and fully in Christ and persevere in that to the end, you're elect. So, you know, there are things that belong to God for him to worry about and there are things that belong to us for us to worry about. And, and I can't resolve all these tensions for us. I know that God is sovereign over all things, and I know that we are absolutely responsible for the choices that we make. Here, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against those for whom Christ died? And Paul, Paul answers this question. Look at the end of verse 33 there. It is God who justifies God is the one who justifies. This is why he had said up at the beginning of the chapter, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? The accuser? Satan? Well, in response to that, the judge, God, you can envision the courtroom scene, right? God seated on the throne of judgment and the, the elect come before him and then Satan, the accuser, comes Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who has justified them. He's already accomplished it. And then, and then he asks another question, teasing out these realities. What shall we say in response to these things? Verse 4, 34, who is to condemn? And, and, and what's interesting here is, I, you know, in the Gospels, in John, Jesus says the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Well, Paul says here in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who's to condemn? Jesus died for the salvation of the elect. Satan can't accuse them. Christ himself died for them. He will not condemn them. More than that, not only did he die, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, in fulfillment of Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, I, I think this is really interesting, the way that this is worded, and I, I just want to spend a moment here to think through these realities with you, to think through the reality of the Lord Jesus having died for us, having risen from the dead, and then interceding for us. So what this text is telling us, number one, is that the penalty for our sin has been paid by Christ's death. When he says there in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. What Paul is saying is that a payment of infinite worth has been made to satisfy God's infinite justice. You know, uh, sometimes in our household, my wife and I, we, we have uh, uh, testy conversations with one another. Um, because we're sinners, and because I'm a sinner, and I do things that she doesn't appreciate. And, and, um, and, it, and, it, and it makes me think of Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could stand? There is so much sin. And sometimes the things that my wife is concerned about that I do, you know, sometimes I, I, I sort of want to think to her, man, 
there's a lot worse stuff than that that, that is going on that you could be concerned about. But she's, she's right in her concerns. I'm a sinner. And there is so much sin that has to be covered. But look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. There is no sin for those who are in Christ. For those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, there is no sin that is unpaid for. There's this great scene in Revelation 12. And, and, and the, the, the scene is there's this, this woman who's in the travail of childbirth. And she's about to give birth to a child. It symbolizes Mary. And then there's another sign in heaven that John describes, and it's a dragon. And he wants to devour the child of the woman as soon as the child is born. And it's sort of enacting the, the ancient conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And, and we're told that this is Jesus about to be born because we're told that uh, this, this child was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So this is uh, the son of David who's going to reign in Jerusalem, King Jesus. And then as soon as he's born... He's caught up to God in heaven. And, and what John is doing symbolically in the vision is he's tele, telescoping the whole life of Jesus. And then as a consequence of this, there's a war in heaven. And what's made possible is that Satan is cast out of heaven. And then those in heaven are told to rejoice because the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. And he's cast out. And what John in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, is symbolically depicting is that the scene that you have in Job chapter, chapters 1 and 2, where Satan comes before God and he accuses Job. And the scene that you have in Zechariah chapter 3, where Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest before God seated on the throne. What you're having depicted in Revelation 12 is that that scene will never happen again. Because of what Christ has done, because of his, his death and resurrection, Satan is thrown out of heaven. He has no more standing in the heavenly court. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. And so I say to you, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God is not receiving Satan's charges against those who belong to Jesus. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn God the judge has decreed our salvation and he, he's the one who did not spare his own son, verse 32. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And so Satan has no more standing in the heavenly court. More than that, who was raised, pointing to his triumph over death, which is a result of sin. So because Jesus has fully conquered sin, he's able to fully conquer death who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Now, I'll confess to you some confusion in, on my part at this point. And, and I think the confusion uh, results from the fact that we are at the limits of what human language can do with the realities of the Trinity. Because when it, when it says that Jesus is interceding for us, it makes it sound like the Father in his justice might be against us, but Jesus is pleading our case on our behalf, right? At least that's the way it sounds to me. The problem with that is, look back at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The judge is for us. Why do we need an intercessor if the judge is for us? And let me just pause here. 
The Bible is saying that if you belong to Jesus, God is for you. God is not angry with you. He's not reluctantly forgiving you. He who did, okay, so if God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. It's God sending Jesus, right? John 3, 16, God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. Well, if he's sending Jesus, why does he need an intercessor between Jesus and the people of Jesus? This is hard for me to comprehend. And then verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Why does he need an intercessor? The judge has already justified them. I don't know what to do with this other than to say something like the Father is fully and completely engaged in accomplishing our salvation. The Son is fully and completely engaged in accomplishing our salvation. And the Holy Spirit is fully and completely engaged in accomplishing our salvation. And somehow in the divine reality, somehow between the members of the, of the eternal trinity, somehow part of the Son's role is to intercede. And, and, you know, when we think about parts of this, we can understand, yes, he pleads his blood on our behalf. And he satisfied God's justice against sin. But we, don't, we should not conclude from that. We don't want to conclude from that, that somehow the Father is against us still. No, it was the Father who sent the Son to begin with. And, and, and also with this, the Holy Spirit, look back, look back at verse 26 there. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. That too doesn't indicate that the Father is against us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And, 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 and so all three members of the Godhead are engaged in our salvation. I, I heard a story this week about, um, I don't know if this story is true or if it's something a preacher made up, but it's a good story. Um, it, it, was, it was about a note that was received by the IRS, and it was an anonymous contribution of $100 with an enclosed note. And the enclosed note said, I've been having trouble sleeping, so here's $100. If this doesn't cure it, I'll send the rest. <laughs> That's somebody dealing with guilt, right? Look at what this text says. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How are you dealing with your guilt? If you're a Christian, this is what you do with your guilt. If you're not a Christian, we would invite you to come to Jesus. We would invite you to come to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. The last and worst enemy is death. Death would end our dreams. It would put a final stop to our hopes. It would end joy forever. It would leave us lifeless corpses to rot in the ground. But Jesus conquered death. The curse has been born. The worst that it could do, it's done. The wrath has been satisfied. The love has been established. God's truth has been upheld. Redemption has been accomplished. Death has been exhausted by infinite life and holiness. Filth 
has been cleansed by everlasting righteousness. Blessing and life have been secured by the Holy One. We are justified. And that leads us to the second part of this passage, verses 35 through 39, where Paul talks about the results of being beloved of God. And there's a there's a, a connection, a logical connection between verses 31 through 34 and verses 39, 35 through 39. Because the lengths to which God has gone to justify us, not sparing his only son, even unto death and resurrection, the lengths to which God has gone to justify us demonstrate the fact that we are his beloved. So Paul again asks questions. His, his question here in verse 35 is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and the who there, and then the wording of what follows, makes it sound like in this list, people are going to bring this, the, these things against, against Christians. So it's, it, it seems to be opponents of the gospel, persecutors, oppressors, enemies of the gospel, they seem to be those who are trying to introduce tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And Paul is saying, who shall separate us from the love? Will any of these persecutors succeed? So he names seven experiences here that, that enemies of the gospel should, could bring into the lives of Christians. And what Paul is saying is, not only are these persecutions going to fail to cut off Christ's love. Verse 35 here, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not only will tribulation not make Jesus stop loving us. Not only will distress not make Jesus stop loving us. And we could go on down through the list. Also, these persecutions are not going to make it where Christians turn away from the love of Jesus. So, so there, there are seven items here, and I think those seven, those seven things are meant to encapsulate the fullness of the wrath of, of anything the Roman Empire could do against Christianity, Anything that some wicked government today that wants to oppose Christians and the gospel and Christianity, anything that, that some unbelieving family member could introduce in, in your life to try to get you to turn away from the gospel, Paul is saying that's not going to turn off the spigot of Christ's love in your life, and it's also not going to make you turn away from Christ's love. None of this is going to separate us from the love of Christ. J.I. Packer, again from Knowing God, he says... You are not strong enough to fall away, away while God is resolved to hold you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then Paul quotes here Psalm 44 verse 22. And he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What he's saying is, even if they decide to kill Christians, we're not going to turn away. We're not going to turn away because, because we all feel in our hearts what Peter said. Where else can we go? 
We all feel in our hearts what Daniel's three friends said when they said, you can either bow or we're throwing you into that fiery furnace. And they said, well, bowing to your statue is not going to help us. We're going to be faithful to the living God. And Paul is saying, that's right. None of that is going to turn off the love of Jesus. And none of that is going to make the people of Jesus turn away from him. For your sake, O Lord, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, there's something very interesting going on here. And, and what I think is interesting is that many places in the Old Testament, the, the, the sacrificial sheep, let's say, like Isaiah 53, that's pointing forward to Jesus. But this place in the Old Testament, Psalm 44, in Psalm 44, it's the believers who are the sheep to the slaughter. So I think even within the Old Testament itself, you kind of have something like Jesus going to the cross and then Jesus saying to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. And we're ready to do it. We're ready to, we're, everybody in this room that's a Christian is ready to sing, wherever he leads, I'll go. Whatever is required of us for Jesus' sake, we'll do. And, and I want to urge us also, I want to urge us to look at this passage and, and to be imitators of God. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We want to be like God toward the people of God. We want to be committed fully. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. We want to be ready. That's my brother and sister in Christ or husbands in this room who are followers of Jesus. It's my wife. I'm ready to lay down my life for her. Fathers in this room, these are my kids. I'm ready to lay down my life for them. He who did not, we want to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Husbands in this room, we want to say to our wives, what, what Christ has said to us, I will always be your husband. I will give my life for your joy. I will put your desires before my own. I will seek your happiness while I live, your godliness till I die, and your everlasting joy. I will lead you in humility, protect you in extremity, and provide for you daily. By God's grace, I will husband you. That's what Jesus has said to the church. And, and believing fathers in this room, this is what we want to, want to say to our kids. This is what the Father has said to us. I am your Father. I will be here for you. I will stand by you always, fight for your purity, teach you the truth, discipline you to obey, build your character, guard your life with mine, find my joy in yours, and love you while I live. I want you to know God, to trust Christ and love Him, to know the Bible better than any other book, to have the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk with God while you live. Because God has loved us this way, we're prepared to love others in this way. And this is how verse 37, Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. And I would remind you that this is on the heels of this, this long discussion in Romans 7 and 8. L look at the end of, of verse 39. 
of, of Romans 8 where Paul says, Christ Jesus our Lord. That whole phrase often marks the end of sections in Paul's letter, letters. The last time, or in, in Romans anyway, the last time it happens was six thir- uh, at the end of 6, at the end of 623, Christ Jesus our Lord. So in some ways, I'm sorry, there it is again in 725. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So The whole of Romans 8 is bracketed by those two statements, Christ Jesus our Lord. And a lot of Romans 8 has been about overcoming temptation. And so Paul is saying we are more than conquerors against our own sins and against those who would persecute us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're going to overcome because of the way that Christ has loved us. Paul had named seven things back in verse 35. He's going to name ten things here in verses 38 and 39. And some of these things are personal and some of them are impersonal. Verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life. So he's just talked about the threat of martyrdom. Neither death nor life, neither of those things is going to, end of verse 39, separate us from the love of God in Christ. Life is not going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. All the enticements, all the joys, neither martyrdom nor the enticements of the good life are going to cut off Christ's love for us or make us turn away from it. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, the powers in the heavens that would deceive us, the powers on the earth that would crush us, nor things present, things we're experiencing now, nor things to come, things we might fear from the future, nor powers, these, these principalities, these, these uh, heavenly beings, none of this is going to have power over God's people to cut off Christ's love. Nor height, nor depth, I think perhaps he's saying the heights of the heavens or the depths of hell, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are justified and we are beloved. And the love of Jesus for his people is never going to end. And none of this stuff is going to bring an end to it. Augustus Toplady, in his, in his hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, he wrote these words. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego, or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing is going to overcome God so as to undo justification, condemn us, or separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. Father, we thank you for these truths. And Lord, again, I just pray that this this passage would be like that massive rock under the wailing wall, that it would be something on which we build our lives, that it would be a shelter against all the attempts of Satan to lead us astray, to accuse us, to condemn us. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be those who take refuge in the Lord Jesus, that we might find him faithful. We pray in his name, by the Spirit. Amen.